Welcome to Wellness Connections with the Solutions Group, a passionate team of health and wellness experts that believe every workplace and every community can be a wellness avenue for positive change in the physical and emotional health of individuals. Our experience in workplace wellness inspired us to bring this passion and knowledge to the podcast stage. Sharing real-world stories and science-based practices, your wellness is an ongoing act of creation and we hope to inspire you on that journey. Okay. Joining us on today's podcast is Paige Kanukin. Paige has an education background in exercise science with a master's in human nutrition and functional medicine. Her master's thesis was on intermittent fasting in women, which is actually today's topic for the podcast. Paige has 10 years of corporate wellness experience working at Verizon and at a cardiovascular clinic. She is actually the newest member of the Solutions Group team as a health and wellness program manager. Welcome, Paige. Thank you for having me today. I'm really excited about this topic. So it's something I feel like we can definitely chat about for a while. Nice. Thanks, Paige. This is Anna. So we start every podcast by asking each of our guests the same question, just as a way to get to know you a little bit better on a personal level. So that question is, who or what is your biggest inspiration around wellness? That question is, uh, it's a tough one, but I think for me, my biggest inspiration is that wellness or well-being is something that's constantly evolving as a process, both both personally and how I can share it with others. So I think to answer your question, my biggest inspiration is being able to share um, well-being with other people in my life, my coworkers, my friends, my family, because over the years, I've always been passionate about wellness just inherently since I was a little girl. And I can share a couple funny stories about that. But what I found is when I share it with other people, it really helps people grow in confidence. And over time, it's a chain reaction. They feel better. So they share those best practices with others and it just grows. So I've seen people optimize their relationships, their careers, just their overall happiness um, by being able to embrace wellness So circling back to when I was younger, my parents were always pretty supportive of my whims and encouraged creativity, but I I wouldn't say they were health nuts. They're pretty typical Midwestern uh, people. So when I was really little, I just couldn't sit still. I was one of those kids that had lots of energy. So pretty early on, I would start putting together obstacle courses for my little sister and my friends in the backyard basically having them do circuit training and repeated circuits. Um, And I thought that was a lot of fun. I would make health smoothies for my mom. So everyone was really supportive, but I just found that sharing that, um, continuing to share that is my biggest inspiration. And I think it's so cool that now as a society, we've embraced well-being a little bit more and there's also more research behind it and the psychology of it. So that's my answer in a nutshell. I love it. I, I, I want to touch on something real quick and kind of get some more information from you. So hearing you say you love inspiring others and sharing your story, kind of give us some more of your background. You know, I hear things like health coaching and personal training and, and being a boot camp instructor for your siblings. Kind of let us know how you got into your current role where you are now. Yeah, I think for whatever reason, I just I grew up in a small town and small towns have that reputation of like not having a lot to do. But I always felt like I stayed busy because I was always entertaining myself and my friends. So um, knowing that I was really interested in wellness, 
I found out there was such a thing as exercise, exercise science, and that was an actual science. So when I got into high school and started looking at maybe furthering my education and going to college, I was just thrilled that programs existed in that field and that I could actually pursue something I had fun doing as a career. Um, and it just grew from there. So I feel very lucky to live in a time when you can pursue wellness as an education field, a career field. Um, but but again, I just think it's something for whatever reason, I knew how good movement in the great outdoors made me feel. Maybe it was endorphins. Um, I became a runner in high school and middle school too. So maybe it was like that runner's high, but I just knew how good that feeling felt without really knowing the science or psychology behind why. And once I was able to share that with other people, I quickly came to realize running isn't well-being to everybody, but maybe walking 15 minutes three times a week is. So me, really meeting somebody where they are and sharing that passion, um, even if it's finding the little passions for them, um, is really uh, gratifying for me. That's a beautiful story. You know, I actually read um, something once that says, like, sometimes we have passions as little kids. Um, but with life kind of happening or getting busy, et cetera, we can kind of lose sight of the things that originally brought us a lot of joy. Um, and so they, when people are looking to reconnect to maybe the things that bring them the most joy, they encourage people to reconnect to what were those innate things that brought them joy in childhood. But it sounds like you never lost sight of that. Like you were able to continue with that, you know, connecting to what brought you joy, which sounds a lot of that is like movement, play, um, and just nourishing different practices that nourish your body. So that's really cool that you've always stayed connected to it. Absolutely. I mean, I've had my highs and lows. And I've always loved pizza and cupcakes, always will. But I think a, a big part of well-being is finding that balance and finding out how you can enjoy the things you love, but also feel good and um, be balanced long term. Wonderful. So talking about pizza and cupcakes and diet, I just want to jump right in because I want to give us enough due time to kind of really get into this. I know that, you know, Anna and myself kind of know about it a little bit. And, and for me, it's something that I've practiced with a little bit myself, but as you, the expert, we want to bring you on and kind of just really pick your brain. So intermittent fasting, kind of quick for somebody who asks you, what is intermittent fasting? What's a quick way to describe it to them? Sure. So intermittent fasting is really, it's more than a diet. It's more of a lifestyle. So it integrates different practices, but the simplest definition is you are just shortening your eating window to a specific time. So intermittent fasting in and of itself doesn't dictate what kind of foods you should eat or a certain eating protocol. Of course, some diets combine two principles together, but basically it's just a manipulation of when you eat and when you don't eat. So it's a pattern um, and that can be very customizable. Um, but again, it's more than just eating pattern. It can influence your sleep, your mental clarity, things like that as well. So it's different habits altogether that that comprise fasting, but the eating component is just a cycle of eating on, eating off. So Paige, you mentioned that there's kind of um, different types or different ways that you can approach that intermittent fasting in terms of the specificity around the routine. And I've read up on kind of, there's a, quite an abundant different protocols, right? What that, you know, specific window of time looks like. Can you talk to us or share with our listeners about like, what are the most popular intermittent fasting protocols in terms of fasting um, to eating ratios? 
Sure. I mean, the last 10 years or so, there's been an explosion in the media and clinical trials and books that have come out about different fasting protocols. The one um, I think that's most sustainable for people, that's the most user-friendly for starting out, is a 16-8 protocol, which means you're fasting for 16 hours and you have an eight-hour eating window. That can sound a little intimidating at first, but if you think about it, Half of those 16 hours, about eight hours or so, you're sleeping, hopefully. And then what I think people really like about that is during that eight-hour eating window, it's customizable due to your schedule. If you like to eat late, you can push your fast back later the next morning. Or let's say your schedule varies from day to day, like many of our schedules do in modern times, modern life. We might eat dinner at eight o'clock one night, six o'clock the next night. You can customize your fasting window to that and push your your morning meal back further the next day if you eat later the night before. Um, Another name for that protocol is called Lean Gains. That was popularized in a book that came came out a few years ago. Um, Another variation on that is a stricter fasting window where you can only eat four hours out of any 24-hour period. Um, So those are kind of the most popular fasting regimens that you could repeat on a daily basis. Other people choose to fast um, in a method called 5-2, which means five days out of the week they eat normally, but on two non-consecutive days of the week, they might eat only 50% of their normal caloric needs. So like in a typical average 2,000 calorie diet, they might eat only 1,000 or 500 calories on their fasting days, or just do a a full 24-hour fast, which is a little bit more drastic, definitely not for beginners or certain health conditions. Um, and there's there's many other variations. There's a 24-hour fast that some people will, will participate in once a week or once a month. Another regimen that has gained a lot of popularity that I'm partial to is called circadian fasting. So that's where you time your eating during daylight hours. And of course, daylight savings uh, just, you know, just occurred. So it kind of makes sense logically that maybe your eating window would be shorter in the winter when the daylight hours are shorter and maybe we're less physically active than in the summer. When there's more daylight, you know, maybe we have a longer consumption period, but we're also more physically active. Um, So I think circadian fasting is really interesting because when you hear the word circadian, you think about sleep rhythms. But what I've learned is that circadian rhythms are also our eating patterns and that even our own gut microbiome follows a circadian rhythm. So that's something really interesting. But I could go on and on. There's many different types of fasts, but um, for practical purposes, I would say 16-8 is the one I looked at the most. So I want to kind of walk you through my thought process real quick. And so actually, I think Lean Gains, the website, is how I found out about intermittent fasting, probably five, seven years ago. But so when you were saying 16, eight, I kind of already knew that you meant hours of the day and they were broken up. But in my head, I'm like, okay, well, 16 hours eating and eight hours fasting. And so if I sleep eight hours a night, well, then there's those eight hours fasting, like easy peasy, no big deal. (laughs) I should specify the 16 hour fast, eight hour eating window. Totally. Because you just totally flipped it on its head, right? (laughs) And I'm like, oh my gosh. And so I've done it. And so I realized, but for somebody who hears that, hears that we're used to eating from, you know, eat breakfast first thing in the morning, a nice hearty breakfast so that you're full for the day. And then we have dinner and sometimes a lot of people like the late night snacking. So we are kind of grazing or eating for 16 hours a day and intermittent fasting kind of flips on his head. So 
for somebody who hears that, they might feel intimidated. How would you recommend somebody starting this or easing into it in a way? Yeah, it's totally intimidating. And of course, before starting any kind of diet regimen or fasting protocol, you'd want to get clearance from your medical provider. I want to mention that first. But I think an easy way to, to start out is for your last meal the night before, have a hearty meal that's macronutrient balanced. So proteins, carbs, and fats, that's going to keep you full the longest. So you're starting out your fast with a full belly. And ideally you would time that meal two to three hours before bedtime. That will help you digest and, and rest well. And then the next morning when you wake up, a lot of people like to start off with water that can fill you up a little bit, but also any kind of non-caloric beverage can be consumed during your fast. That can be black coffee, unsweetened tea, um, even some people will chew sugar-free gum. Um, so in a strict fast, you'd only have these non-caloric items. But I do want to mention there's other fasting protocols out there that have gained popularity, like the Bulletproof Diet, for example, with Dave Asprey, where some people will consider a fast when they've only consumed a little bit of protein or fat and no carbohydrate as well. So there's a little bit of mixed uh, research on that regimen. But let's say you just have uncontrollable uncontrollable hunger and you really feel like you can't reach that 16 hour mark, I would say listen to your body. And some um, some research indicates that you can consume up to 40 calories of a plant-based fat, like maybe a little almond butter, for example. And that can help satiate you just enough, but also not trigger an insulin response that would throw off your technical fasting period. Um, I also want to say that a lot of research I've looked at has indicated that you can receive benefits from fasting. We haven't really talked about those yet, but you can receive benefits um, after just 12 hours of fasting. So not everyone um, can reach that 16 hour fast. It's maybe not attainable, but just don't feel like a failure if you, you know, you tried out to 12 hour fast and you made it to there, maybe that's an improvement for you. Or another really cool thing about fasting is that you can do it three or four or five days a week. It's not something that you necessarily have to do seven days a week to get results or benefit from it. So I would say just baby steps. So when I worked in the cardiovascular clinic and I saw a lot of pre-diabetic or diabetic patients, these people notoriously have blood sugar regulation issues. And of course, you'd always wanna break your fast if you feel symptoms like hypoglycemia where you feel shaky or really hungry or um, anxiety ridden. But for those people, we would just start with a 12-hour fast three or four days a week and maybe add an hour on each week if they were tolerating that well. I love that you you know mentioned a couple things. One is, which I do want to dive into the benefits, but one is um, sometimes we can hear, oh, intermittent fasting means, you know, fasting for a full 16 hours. And but that there is benefit to even just a 12 hour fast. So I do want to take a little bit of a deep dive into the benefits because ultimately that's what we are wanting to do. Our purpose of this podcast is really helping our listeners figure out ways um, on their wellness journey, how they can start to take care of their own health. And so one of the biggest reasons why intermittent fasting has blown up, as you mentioned, over the last 10 years is because of those very health benefits that people are experiencing. So I'd like to maybe understand kind of um, what are the health 
um, benefits, kind of the ones that have the most research on them that we're seeing when somebody practices intermittent fasting. Um, but also you mentioned a couple of things around hormonal um, improvements, specifically for people with prediabetes and diabetes. But so both what are the health benefits, but also what are some of the implications um, around hormone regulation or hormone balance when somebody does practice intermittent fasting? This is a great question. And this is where a lot of the research focuses. Um, I will say that one limitation we have right now is a lot of the research is in rat models. So we can't always say that applies to human models, but as we're getting more and more interested in fasting, we've been able to observe fasting in different cultures and different people in both a clinical and non-clinical setting. So I think the reason fasting blew up in popular media is of course where most of us are looking for a way to maintain our weight. A lot of people are trying to lose weight. So um, in simple terms, I think fasting works just because you are limiting your eating window. So let's say you cut off your eating after 6 p.m. and you're a typical nighttime snacker that automatically just reduces the calories you'd be munching on after dinner, like cookies, chips, etc. So in simplistic terms, yes, you are shortening your eating window. So that shortens your opportunity to take in extra calories. But on a hormonal level, fasting does influence this cascade of hormones. So there's something called an HPG access. So it's hypothalamic pituitary gonadal access. So it influences a lot of our hormones. So you may have heard of hunger hormones before. Um, they can influence our appetite signaling, our satiety levels. One is called ghrelin, which is an appetite stimulator. I always think ghrelin gremlin, like a hunger gremlin. So <laughs> I love that. That's how I remember that one. It stimulates your appetite. And what's really interesting is in fasting, even though you're, you're fasting for a prolonged period of time, once an individual consumes that, that fast-breaking meal, their um, ghrelin, that appetite-stimulating hormone, tends to be suppressed a little bit. And that brings us to leptin, which is, in simplistic terms, more of an appetite suppressor. And something that's interesting about leptin is in people who are overweight or obese, um, leptin tends to circulate at lower levels. So those individuals might feel hungrier more often. So fasting can be a really effective tool in that it sounds counterintuitive, but once you break your fast and have that first meal, leptin, the appetite suppressor, um, goes up and ghrelin, the appetite stimulator, is suppressed somewhat. So it kind of flips it around and reverses so that people who might always feel hungry, who never feel satiated, do have those feelings more so. And then another huge hormone is insulin. So that's why um, in pre-diabetic or diabetic people, fasting can be a helpful tool. Insulin is a hormone that regu regulates the amount of glucose in our blood. And so um, between meals, if we're not eating constantly, leptin levels do have a chance to go down a bit. Um, and so when insulin levels lower, this is, of course, um, speaking in really simplistic terms, um, if we allow our insulin to go down low enough for a long enough period of time, that might help promote our fat burning potential. So I think as far as um, hormones, those are the things we hear a lot about because we're all looking for that way to lose or maintain weight. I shouldn't say we all are, but 
you know, with so much of our population battling stubborn weight, it's a potent tool. But um, I came across other hormones in my research that were just kind of peeking into hormones that can um, influence our lifespan. So fasting might have implications in promoting longevity. It might have implications in um, decreasing symptoms of autoimmune conditions. So autoimmune condition is where your own um, cells attack attack themselves, essentially. And it's more prevalent in females than males. So think things like Hashimoto's thyroiditis, multiple sclerosis. Fasting models have been shown to decrease clinical severity of those conditions. We've also seen it decrease inflammation and Um, As you might know, inflammation is a driver of many health conditions like cardiovascular disease, um, even depression. So fasting, um, you know, of course, there's drawbacks. It's not going to be a magic bullet for everything, but there's a lot of promising research out there that really expands beyond just weight loss, weight maintenance. So you might be thinking, okay, maybe weight loss isn't my goal. But I think fasting is really interesting because there's um, potential health benefits and even mental clarity benefits beyond that. Mm. I love how there's two sides of the coin to where the easy basic of I just need to eat less calories. So if I'm eating less hours during the day, there's a chance I'm going to be eating less calories. So it's kind of black and white. And somebody can can look at this diet and say, okay, this might work for me because I'm like you said, I might not do that late night snacking, or I might not reach for a bagel the first thing in the morning. I might give myself some time to really just settle into my day and maybe grab some healthier choices. But then on the flip side of the coin, all that great, amazing research you talked about, you know, and hormones um, and insulin, glucose. But what I'm kind of hearing a little bit is you get benefits from fasting. And sometimes some of those benefits might go away once you're eating. And I'm not going to ask this question in a dumb way, I'm kind of playing more devil's advocate, is is eating bad? Like, is it doing negative things to our body where the fasting benefits do come from for these longer periods of time? Yeah, that's a great question. So eating, I mean, is is the foundation of life in some ways. So eating's not bad. I would say um, in fasting, it doesn't tell you what to eat, but what you eat still does matter. So we talk about all these health benefits, and, and there's even blood chemistry benefits to fasting. But that being said, you still want to pay attention to what you eat because that can influence hormones. That can influence appetite signals as well. That's also important. But I think fasting just feels attainable to people because there's not so many rules and calorie counting and that mental expenditure that might go into more typical commercial diets. So I think that can be really freeing for some people not to mention um, people of different socioeconomic status because it's not a diet you have to really spend a lot of money on. Um, I'm sure eventually pharmaceutical companies will are focusing their research on this and trying to find a way to mimic fasting pharmaceutically. But in the meantime, it's something we can harness without spending money. But no, eating itself is not bad. It's definitely something we thrive on as a, as a living creature. But I think fasting just brings more awareness to your eating patterns. And I think fasting allows you um, maybe emotionally too, just to savor your food and enjoy it more and appreciate when you're eating. We're in this culture of abundance when food is available 24-7 and grazing constantly is kind of just built into how we are as a society. 
So fasting, um, I think, just makes you appreciate those times you sit down and eat, mm. can take some of the mental game out of it, the counting. Because I know for a lot of patients I've worked with in the past, calorie counting was a stressor for them. And when I say fasting is more of a lifestyle than a diet, I think that's part of it because you can free up some mental energy around that and and uh, appreciate your food more. So to answer your question, yeah, fast or eating isn't bad. It's something to be celebrated and enjoyed and nourish ourselves with. Um, we do need the nutrients from food to carry out a lot of cellular processes, but um we're finding that the timing of food really does matter, which I think is surprising for a lot of people, including me, because I used to be that person that had to have breakfast first thing in the morning, as soon as I got out of bed. So experimenting with fasting for myself has been a, has been a journey. It does take a little bit of adaptation. I love all those themes you touched on. Um, you know, Paige, where you're talking about the act of like savoring food or, you know, during. So when I was getting ready and thinking about the questions or the some of the conversation I wanted to have with you today, a lot of it was on, well, how would somebody know whether or not they're a good candidate for intermittent fasting? Because again, I, as a dietitian, I feel very passionately about obviously practicing the ethics around making recommendations that are based and grounded in science first and foremost that are safe so you've already discussed you know the importance of talking with your healthcare provider if it's something that you do think you want to experiment with and that's the other word you use that i really think is important is experimentation and maybe starting with 12 hours rather than right off the bat doing 16 hours but i just love that you touched on the the um, theme of um, it's more than just weight management. It really does have a lot of research that supports like just overall whole body um, improve, improvements in health from just overall kind of systemic inflammation. And, you know, one thing I actually want you to elaborate a little bit more on is um, how it might impact the gut health or the microbiome. Um, so yeah, if you can talk a little bit about one, I guess my first question is, how does intermittent fasting positively impact our gut microbiome? And then I'll save my other question for a little bit later. Yeah. Okay. I can definitely answer those questions and also kind of talk about who would and wouldn't be a good candidate. So I'll start there. Um, so I think um, fasting is really accessible to a lot of people for most healthy adults, Um and I think in our society, too, people who maybe are concerned about storing a little excess fat, especially that visceral fat, which we store around our midsection, um, people who are pre-diabetic. Um, I think anyone who is busy, has a really busy schedule, because fasting can help free up parts of your day because you maybe aren't having to do as much meal prep or, or planning. Um, also, someone who wants to maintain muscle mass, but also lose fat at the same time. That's one drawback of a lot of caloric restriction diets is that you might lose a little bit of muscle mass. Um, fasting, another benefit to fasting is in that a lot of studies, people have been able to lose fat without losing muscle, which is really cool, which helps keep your metabolism going. Um, maybe somebody who travels regularly deals with jet lag. I know right now during the pandemic, that's not a big issue, but maybe you're working from home and your schedule is totally out of whack. Fasting might be a way to kind of schedule yourself and hold yourself accountable. Um, also, 
if you're just looking to upgrade your immune system, which is another important thing right now, fasting might help modulate the immune system, which does bring me to the gut health piece. So back when I wrote my paper, and um, there wasn't as much research on fasting and gut health, but it's just a topic I've remained interested in. So gut bacteria, I think I alluded to earlier, has its own circadian rhythm. And fasting has been shown to help improve the diversity of the good bacteria in our gut and decrease the bad bacteria, if you will. So I saw a rat study recently in which they gave the rat salmonella food poisoning, basically. And the rats who were practicing fasting actually didn't have um, negative symptoms compared to the rats who weren't. So that was pretty fascinating. But the way that works, there's still a lot of research out there. We don't know a ton about it, but um, fasting might help give our gut microbiomes time to go through a fermentation process in which your your gut creates short-chain fatty acids, which are helpful to us, called acetate and lactate. And those might feed into the weight maintenance portion because those might help us maintain something called brown fat, which is more metabolically active. So it's like this whole cycle um, of It's like a chain reaction again of like if fasting can improve our gut microbiome, that can help us maintain our weight. And so it goes around and around, um, which is really interesting to me. But I will mention fasting isn't a magic bullet. Again, if you're not eating well overall, I will say just anecdotally experimenting with some mild fasting myself, I find that I can fit in a few more treats and maybe maintain my weight with fasting a little bit better, but still eat well overall. But people who might want to avoid fasting are women who are pregnant or who want to get pregnant. Like if you are wanting to be fertile, you probably don't want to limit your eating window. Um, athletes who may, who struggle to maintain energy balance, um, people who struggle with hypoglycemia, so that blood sugar regulation dysregulation, Also, I think people who maybe have a recent history of disordered eating, fasting might um, be a stressor for them because it is manipulating your eating window. Um, And then, of course, elderly persons might want to avoid fasting. So I did want to make sure I brought that up because it's not something I'd recommend across the board. It's so individualized. And, And culturally, I think it could be hard, too, for some people, like within a family structure, to practice fasting just because everyone's on a different schedule. So I wanted to bring that up too. So I'm going to jump right in on that and saying that, so I've done it and anecdotally I do it to feel better and, and you know, all those things. And if I can last past 10 o'clock, I get this weird mental clarity and I feel great. And, but it works for me. Right. But when my wife or my sister-in-law say, Hey, you know, I might want to try it because you know, the, all the benefits that you mentioned earlier, but I don't feel like I'm in a place where I can one recommend it to somebody else, but two, especially recommend it to women. Cause I know they're just entirely different when it comes to hormones and all other things. Can, can, can you kind of touch on the difference between men and women and recommendations in that? Definitely. So women um, do have a bunch of different dynamics at play, not just hormonally, but throughout the life cycle, maybe they are pregnant or breastfeeding or premenopausal or postmenopausal. So there's so many different factors at play. So what I've found in my research is that ex- more extreme fa- fasting protocols, for example, where you would fast 24 hours one day and then eat normally the next day, 
in rat models that was actually shown to um, shrink the ovaries and, and cause skipped menstrual cycles and really negatively impact fertility. So most of the research in, indicates that mild fasting can be effective in females of childbearing age. So maybe the 16-8 or even a more mild 12-hour fast, 12-hour eating window can be helpful. And then in postmenopausal women, who often find that their fat stores shift, their hormones shift, they're looking to lose weight, that extreme fasts can actually contribute to excess weight gain. Mm -hmm. So um, fasting and more vigorous protocols, is, it doesn't look like it's, it's suitable for women across the lifespan, but milder fasting is. And I think it really depends on, on someone's personal life too, because um, mental health stressors and and things like that can play a role too. I would also say how many calories you are consuming during your eating window, how much protein you're consuming during your eating window, how hard you're exercising. There's so many factors at play when it comes to recommending fast fasting to somebody. So I think really interviewing that person and finding out their individual factors plays a role. Also, yeah, so fasting in the menstrual cycle is interesting because um, just from, again, going back to those hunger hormones, um, your hunger changes throughout your cycle too. So I think there is some wisdom in listening to your body and eating when you feel very hungry or fatigued or depleted. Um, maybe you, you normally do a 16-8 fast, but in the week leading up to your cycle, you decide not to. You just fast for 12 hours. Um, I think there's some merit to listening to your body and doing that and monitoring how you're doing overall. But um, one, uh, a lot of the observational studies done in fasting were done um, in people observing Ramadan in Muslim cultures, mm -hmm. where they actually do kind of the opposite of circadian fasting. They fast during the daylight hours and eat upon nightfall. And in women in those populations, they... Um, observed not so much weight maintenance, weight loss benefits of fasting, but more so um, improved physiological biomarkers of fasting. So, so again, men seem to do a little bit better with perhaps a more aggressive fasting protocol. I would say fasting is generally safe. There were pretty few side effects with the mild fasting protocols in women, but once they got into the more aggressive 24-hour fasts, for example, then especially over long term, there seemed to be problems. But I do want to mention in rat models, they say, or I've read that in rats, 12 weeks is almost equivalent to 10 human years. So if rats were placed like on a 12-week diet and it had negative effects that might be like a human following a diet for, for 10 years. So it's really hard to draw conclusions across the board. So like in the female rats whose ovaries shrunk during the more intense fasting protocol, it's hard to say that would happen in females. But in female models, there have been some negative implications, maybe not quite as drastic as um, sex organs shrinking, but still, um, still some negative implications. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like for women, um, maybe there's a, more to the middle is usually, or more of a moderate approach to fasting is certainly a better path 
rather than for men, because they don't have all of the, you know, life cycles or hormonal, mm -hmm. you know, 28 hormonal cycle that maybe they um, can be, uh, it's a little bit more safe so far for what the research shows to maybe experiment with some, a little bit, some of the marks, I don't want to call them extreme, but more extended sure. um, fasting protocols. Sure. And I will say the research in female humans was harder to come across. So I published uh, my paper in 2019. And a lot of the research I had to pick out the female data from the male data, or they would refer if I wanted to look at most postmenopausal women, for example, a paper would say fasting in older women, and then the older woman would be 30 years old. <laughs> so the data out there is really limited in females, which I think might be kind of common. We look at a lot of research in males, which I thought that's why the Ramadan um, observational studies were so interesting because we did have a lot of female subjects in those. But I think as people um, grow more interested in fasting and maybe don't look at it as a trend so much and look at it more as a lifestyle, we'll see um, more clinical trials. Oh, which also reminds me, um, when fasting was left up to the individual, let's say post-trial, out of the lab setting or out of a supervised setting, um, especially with the 16-8, people did stick to it. There was like a 96 to a 98% adherence rate, which to me, um, that shows that it's sustainable. And I think that's why a lot of diets fail, so to speak, as people can't maintain those long-term. So I did wanna mention that fasting might be something you can stick with long-term or use as you need. Also, going back to those satiety measures, people, um, it wasn't just that they cut out snacking at certain times a day, they naturally reduced their caloric intake by up to 30% by limiting their eating window. And um, they didn't report a lot of negative side effects. So I know in dieting, you can feel a little bit grumpy or low energy levels, mood swings, things like that. And in the surveys they did of people who practice the, the milder fasting protocols, the first month or so, they would feel hungrier during the latter part of their fast, or they would be a little bit grumpy. But after the first month or so, most people reported um, feeling that mental clarity, like you mentioned, Shane, or um, being more productive, or um, you know, maybe even being able to do a light workout during the latter part of the fast, like a walk. Um, which um, some people will use as icing on the cake, so to speak, when it comes to the fat loss protocols. It's like an old bodybuilding trick, which I guess there's some merit to it in the research too. Um, but, but yeah, it's just, it's interesting to me that something, it might be effective because it's more adherable. That's another reason it might work. So who would be a good candidate to, try this out. If, if you're recommending ideal somebody to experiment with it, what would you say? I would say if you're somebody who wants to upgrade their schedule um, and you're a relatively healthy adult, maybe you have a little extra weight to lose, maybe you don't, uh, or you want to maintain your weight without, without um, drastically changing what you eat, it's a good regimen to pick. Um, you could change what you eat and couple it with fasting. There were some clinical trials in which people coupled a Mediterranean diet, for example, with a mild fasting protocol. But I would say just your general healthy adult or maybe somebody who's a tad overweight looking to maintain weight, um, that 
So I think that covers a wide range of us. <laughs> and then maybe you are at your ideal body weight, but you are interested in the longevity benefits or the immune benefits, or you want to, it's COVID. We hear that word so much. And so we want to keep our immune systems upregulated. I think that's great. I mean, one of the things that I want to go back to that you mentioned was this principle of, yes, you might be wanting to follow a protocol, an intermittent fasting protocol, but for women specifically, also the principle of listening to our body, which I am very passionate about the whole concept of what I call intuitive eating, which is taking pause to listen to what does my body need right now in the moment. So I like that you coupled like, yeah, if you're somebody who wants to experiment with it, for a woman who is still experiencing in, in the season of their life where they are having a menstrual cycle, you may very well need to come off that fasting protocol in the week leading up to your menstrual cycle. So I really wanted to highlight that you said that because I love no matter what you're following, you know, even if it isn't a female, that sometimes there's going to be days, depending on what's going on, where really listening to your body um, and just seeing, you know, what it might need in that day. Um, so I'm big about that, not, you know, not following the principle of like extremes or having to quote unquote be um, perfect with whatever it is that you're following. But I also thought it was cool. A metaphor I heard when you said that sometimes allowing the um, gut microbiome to go an extended period of time without receiving any any food allows for that optimal fermentation, you know, in the, the bacterial environment that has all kinds of a cascade of effects. A cool analogy that somebody um, shared with me from a book talking about that is if you were to have a highway being repaired, they usually shut the highway down from like 10 p.m. to like 6 a.m. Um, and that's so that the highway can have optimal restoration overnight, right? Um, and if you were to, you know, just say, you know, we're going to let like five cars through like at, you know, 11 p.m., then that schedule or the plan for the restoration of the highway doesn't get met because or it doesn't have optimal restoration because you let five or six cars through. So they're using that as a, you know, way to describe what happens if we don't give the gut or the body that you know, that consistent or that prolonged fast, that then it doesn't have the uh, optimal restoration from like the gut microbiome perspective, or, you know, just allowing the body to kind of have some rest at a cellular level. So I thought that was a fun way that really resonated with me. Um, when maybe I was a little bit, you know, fearful, like you of like, Oh, I don't want to fast or I have to eat as soon as I get up in the morning. Mm -hmm. So Thanks for sharing the, the, especially the piece about the intuitive part, listening to your body as well. Yeah. Thanks for highlighting that piece, because I think that's something that maybe isn't spelled out in the research, but just in practicing it myself or talking to my friends and family who have experimented with it, um, they've seen benefits from it, but yeah, everyone's a little bit different. And I think also going back to what else is going on in your life, are you training for a race? Are you having a lot of stress in your family? Like there's so many different factors that um, can apply. So um, again, the research doesn't reflect that in, among individual subjects either. I think listening to your body is just a reoccurring theme within the wellness industry and within this podcast, you know, just making sure you're in tune to what you're doing. Is it working? Is it not? We're such a society of extremes where, you know, if you're doing this diet and it's not working for you, it's probably because you didn't do it hard enough or you didn't do it correctly. Um, so I love how you said, first and foremost, listen to your body. 
but at the same time, kind of give yourself the permission. If you are starving at that 12 hour mark, eat if you want, or if you're doing uh, you know, intermittent fasting five days a week, then enjoy your weekend and wake up and have breakfast with your spouse or with your family or whatever, first thing. So giving yourself that permission to kind of steer from the road if you need be, but at the end of the day, you're doing what's best for your body just by listening to it. Definitely. And I'm glad you brought that up, Shane, because one study did mention that taking a break from intermittent fasting made it even more effective, whether that's one day a week or one week a month. Um, so I thought that was really cool because that is kind of a contrast to that like diehard mentality that we have. Like if you miss a day, you've messed everything up. It's <laughs> kind of the opposite of that. It's like, okay, take some breaks. Um, and it also reminds me of um, an Instagram account I follow there's a doctor, her name's Amy Shaw, and she's at Fasting MD. And she's a huge proponent of circadian fasting. She's built her whole medical practice around the concept of fasting. And she's a great follow and she posts stories every day. I've learned a lot from her um, about fasting. And she has two young children and a husband. And then, of course, she's a female, so she's able to talk about it from that perspective as well as the perspective of her patients. Um, so she's somebody really interesting. There's a lot of practitioners starting to integrate it in into their practice as far as um, like cardiovascular health, for example, like managing prediabetes rather than starting a course of metformin, mm -hmm. perhaps that's an option for you. Um, um, one thing that one tool that I use, so speaking from a personal level, I've found that like a 13 hour fast is what makes me feel good. It just lands around that 13 hour mark most of the time. Um, longer than that's a little bit difficult for me, but there's a free app I downloaded called the Zero app. So Z-E-R-O. And what's cool about that is it's a great resource with a lot of articles in it, but it also lets you customize your fast. So um, whenever you finish your last meal in the evening, you can hit start fast. And so for me, 13 hours later, the next morning, it sends me a notification. Okay, mm. fast is ended. Time to eat. Um, and I like that just because I think in real life, our schedule varies quite a bit. And that's another resource I wanted to share. That's just kind of fun. Or you can set it up to do a circadian fast where it looks at um, sunset, sunrise in your region. And it wow. um, helps you structure your fasting around that. So a lot of fun things with that app. I feel like we could just sit here and talk about this all day, but it sounds like you gave us some three solid resources to kind of kick us off. I don't, I don't even know where to start or end this because I know we want to end it at some point. But like I said, I feel like I could pick your brain for another two hours or so. It's so interesting. I just feel like you could talk about it all day. Um, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think, what, can you repeat the name of the MD, the fasting MD again, so that people know where to find her or how to find her on Instagram? How would they search? Sure. So when you're looking for people on Instagram, she's at fasting MD and her name is Dr. Amy Shaw. Perfect. And then zero app is the app to help you um, set your timer from the last time you eat um, for how long. And you, it sounds like you get to tell it, I want to do a 12 hour fast, 13, 14. So you personalize your own fasting window. You do. And it's, it's makes it fun too. So you earn badges. So like once you've hit a full week or seven days out of 20 of fasting, you earn a badge or they have group fasts. So other users of the app will participate in a group fast. So they make it pretty interactive too. Hmm. 
Cool. Awesome. Are there any other books or anything? If somebody were interested in taking a little bit deeper dive and understanding this, would you, is there any books that you would recommend or maybe podcasts or anything? Yeah, there is a book and I always forget the name. There it is. It's called the obesity code. It was published in 2016, Dr. Jason Fung. And that has a lot of great information about intermittent fasting and longevity benefits. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Paige. I feel like I learned a lot and do appreciate you, you know, just really, I think you covered a breadth of different benefits because I think the thing that people go to first and foremost, and they think intermittent fasting is a weight management tool, which it is that, but it is so much more than that. So I appreciate you covering so much of, of the topic. Absolutely. Thank you. We hope this conversation with Paige helped you expand your understanding about intermittent fasting. Paige's review of the research shows us that there's promising benefits for our gut microbiome, hormone regulation, and body weight, and also implications for longevity. We're all on our personal path to better health, and intermittent fasting may be a helpful tool that is customizable and flexible, and can be more of a lifestyle than a fad diet with rigid rules. As she mentioned, intermittent fasting isn't a magic bullet, but if you're curious about learning more, you can check out the book, The Obesity Code, or look for Dr. Amy Shaw on Instagram with the handle at fastingmd. Check out solutionsbiz.com if you're interested in learning more about our services. Have a beautiful day and best in health.